0: Thank you. and welcome to the KI Prime podcast. I'm Alina Jenkins, and in the first episode, we heard about the history of this prestigious prize, and from some of the people who made it possible. Over the next four episodes, our attention turns to those who've been the recipient of the prize, starting with Professor Brian Hodges, who was the winner in 2016. Brian is the Professor in the Faculty of Medicine, and Executive Vice President, Education, and Chief Medical Officer at the University Health Network in Toronto. He's also a practicing psychiatrist and teacher and a member of the KI Prime Prize Committee. Professor Hodges has spent the last 25 years advocating for a closer examination of the role that medical education plays in society. His research focuses on assessment, competence, compassion, and the future of the health profession. He successfully advocated including simulations and assessment of mental health and communication skills in medical examinations. This is now standard practice in his native Canada and many other countries. When I spoke to him in July 2020, he told me his research has gone through different phases and initially started by looking at the use of simulation in mental health and psychiatry.
1: My research career has had several phases and I think the prize um, tries to capture a body of of work. So the first phase of it actually was quite uh, technical in that I was inventing with colleagues the use of simulation in mental health and psychiatry. So some of the first work I did was I I recognized that in other areas like surgery, it was very common to simulate uh, interactions with patients to assess competence, but it hadn't really been done in mental health. So for the first time, we started to work with actors and with um, scenarios that were created to teach students and then later examine them on their competence Um, so that um, we could uh, basically assess areas of, I I don't like the word softer competence, but more complex uh, relational human dimensions of competence. So the first 10 or so years of my career and my research which was called out by the Karolinska Prize, had to do with innovation in the area of the interpersonal in mental health and psychiatry. However, I went past that quite a bit and started to question the nature of competence itself. What is competence for a health professional and how does that evolve to be adapted for a very changing landscape where you have more equality with patients, where you have different kinds of knowledge, you have technology like we're using today, Uh, and recognising that a lot of the competence frameworks we had were 100 years old. And and really, we needed to evolve that.
0: When you won the prize in 2016, you gave a speech at the Karolinska Institutet, where you said much of what you had learned at medical school had changed. How challenging is this continuously shifting landscape when it comes to evolving these competency frameworks?
1: this is one of the important and slightly daunting realizations of the 21st century is that the professions by and large have rested on the notion that you get your certification your degree or diploma and essentially in the past you've been good for life uh, it was your proof that you were a good doctor or a good nurse a good physiotherapy therapist and that was permanent that's actually ridiculous <laughs> the, the, the pace of change of knowledge It's said, I don't know by whom, but um, that knowledge changes such that around 50% of what we know turns over in in its uh, truth every five years or so. So um, if I I took, for example, the area of antibiotic treatment, when I graduated from medical school, uh, ulcer disease was thought to be caused by stress. And then the whole paradigm shift a little later when they discovered a bacteria, some scientists in Australia discovered it was actually an infectious disease. And and this is true in every field of medicine where there's constant change. So we've spent an awful lot of time and money investing in pre-certification education, pre-MD, pre-RN, and almost nothing in the health professions on how to maintain and sustain competence in all those years of practice. So this has become a big shift for all of us and for me as well, including my uh, work in simulation. Uh, recognising that people have to have exposure to education constantly throughout their practice to stay competent.
0: Your work in simulation is only part of your research, and I know you've done a lot of work in the field of communication. When you think about communication in medicine and healthcare, there's a lot of focus on technical and diagnostic skills, but communication skills are as important. How do you ensure you're getting the right balance? Well, actually,
1: your introduction of your own area in communications, uh, journalism, the arts, there's a, a great deal of expertise about human communication that largely wasn't accessed by health professionals for a long time. So a lot of healthcare care communication has been technocratic. Take a history. And by that, it meant just your symptoms. Um, I've written a few papers that documented the way, unfortunately, we've often trained people in a robotic interrogation type interview style. Do you have this? Do you have that? Do you have the other thing? Um, Areas like mental health, and I would say geriatrics and rehab, there are certain other family medicine, have for probably 50 years been infusing a more holistic or whole person style. So that at least broadened it to say, let's not interrupt the patient in the first 15 seconds. Let's let them talk. How are you? Tell me about how your week is going. But going out to the very sophisticated form of communication that you you would have trained in, that that people understand in journalism, in the arts, in literature, which is coming into medicine now, um, means understanding the construction of language, what it means to speak in a different language, to work through an interpreter, um, narrative medicine, the ability to tell a story, um, the nonverbal. The, uh, the, the fact that people often will not say what they mean and there's something behind that and you need to figure out an empathic way to get through to someone so they feel trust. So a lot of the work uh, is, is on broadening the competencies of communication. And in the simulations we developed, we used, we would add in anger or fear or, or, or uh, uh, a need to disguise the truth, uh, such as in an addiction. Or a communication challenge, like a patient with early dementia that might be subtle. Or someone who actually is trying to speak in English but doesn't really understand. and See if the the health professional or the student picks up on those cues and whether or not they can uh, use devices to improve the quality of the communication.
0: So how do you assess this skill? Because you could argue that assessing communication skills is objective rather than subjective.
1: It's my, one of my favorite topics, and one of the papers that I know Karolinska cited during the prize time, which seems to have had a lot of resonance, is called Learning to Love the Subjective and Collective. And um, medicine has fallen into the trap of reductionism uh, many times in its long history, uh, reducing your health down to a few blood tests or a few tick boxes. In fact, most of what we do in medicine is fairly subjective. So when a, a doctor walks in a room and, and, and um, engages with a patient around all of the things that are, are presented, it's quite a subjective process. There are some objective hard data, yes, but we use a great number of subjective or, or soft things, plus a lot of intuition. So actually, physicians and health professionals are not unfamiliar with using subjective data. The same is true in education when you're asked to judge the competence of your student. Are they ready for graduation? Yes, we look at exam scores, but more often we ask a subjective question such as, would I send a family member to this person as a, as a doctor or as a health professional? That's a very subjective question. At the same time, subjectivity can be quantified or can be measured. So we developed some um, inventories for the assessment of these simulations, communication. In fact, it works out for live communication too, based on, this is gonna sound incredibly academic, but Aristotle's foundation for rhetoric or uh, the concept that there are tasks in high quality communication. And um, simplified a bit, but basically understood that there are several core things that must happen. The clarity and use of language is one of them. It's only one of them. Um, the communication of intent or the understanding of the nonverbal, working with the, the interaction in a way that fosters meaning and the exchange of information is a fairly observable skill. You can really see quite quickly when someone is not on the same page with a patient or a family member, not listening. Then there's the domain of empathy, which is the attempt to want to be driven to understand the perspective of the other person. And then there's a whole lot of devices that are linguistic that are that help foster understanding, clarification, summaries um, um, in certain types of inquiries. And so these things are there's I guess you could call them soft. I just find that um, that sort of undervalues the the um, the rigor of learning to use these communication devices. So we have formalized those into global rating scales that that list each of these different kinds of communication devices. And trained raters are able to assess whether they're present, whether they're weak, whether they're strong, or whether the person is quite adept with them.
0: You mentioned Aristotle's pillars of rhetoric, which goes back tens of thousands of years and underpins all good communication. One key principle is the idea of ethos, which I think means I'm like you or I understand you, which is about compassion. And this has been a major part of your research.
1: Yes. Yes. um, Well, it's often uh, true that we go back to Hippocrates and and for sure that there's some foundational values in medicine from Hippocrates. But, you you know, Aristotle, uh, certainly not the only one. In fact, there's a cross-cultural frame that is often lost. The uh, amazing work in history through in China, in the Arabic world, uh, the, the contributions to what medicine and healthcare are, we're rediscovering that. So in terms of compassion, um, I would say this is the uniting reason for healthcare. It's, it's healthcare, it's the anchoring concept for healthcare professionals. And in my most recent work, where I've been looking at the role of artificial intelligence, uh, non-human systems, I've argued that um, there's a trio, again, going back to uh, Aristotle, but there's a, there's a body of knowledge, there's a body of skill, but then there's um, a human... Um, advanced judgment areas, so the fancy terms, you know, episteme for knowledge and techné for the technical skills. But there's a, a concept called phronesis, which is is a it's the wise use of judgment applied in an interactional situation. And and I I feel that artificial intelligence and all of the amazing knowledge based systems will dominate in the knowledge area. Patients can now look up and. With the caveat of the quality of the of the information. But still, all the information that I learned in medical school is available to everyone easily now. And in terms of technical skills, yeah, the average person won't do surgery on themselves. But we all go to the Internet to find out. I, I sprained my ankle the other week. And, you know, I'm a long way from understanding that body of knowledge. But there were some outstanding videos about how I could do some exercises and how I could protect it and how I could treat myself. So... The technical and robotics is coming. So the, te- the, the technological shifts in knowledge and skills are profound. And we cannot allow the health professions to rest only on those two things. It must be the basis of compassion, judgment, human interaction, phrenesis, the, the, the pieces of human wisdom and human kindness and human compassion. So when you mention beginning with empathy, um, we have a book forthcoming on compassion, and it's called uh, With, Without Compassion, There Is No Health And the argument goes, empath, empathy is important. That's the ability for me to understand or try to um, interpret, learn about your perspective. But compassion goes one step forward. It's the healer's commitment to do something, to relieve suffering, to act. And I would argue that uh, all the knowledge and all the skills in the world don't make a health professional, don't make a healthcare system. It has to be bound together with with compassion, caring and compassion.
0: So we have this dichotomy. Compassion is vital, but technical advancements lead us further down the artificial intelligence route. What are your thoughts on the rise of AI? As an example, when I go to see my GP, I tap on a screen to say I've arrived, and then the digital screen in the surgery says the doctor is ready to see me, and it's some time before I have any human interaction – are there any concerns around how AI and technology will impact compassion and that human connection?
1: I have that concern. I think we shouldn't um, exaggerate it, but, I, but I'll give you some examples of how I think we should approach this question in an academic way. So um, in Canada, and I'm sure it's true in Sweden and all parts of the world, the COVID crisis forced us rapidly to shift to a set of technologies that we were using occasionally. You and I are using one now, we're discussing virtually. So I have this kind of interaction with my patients. I'm a psychiatrist, and I did not have that interaction prior to COVID. I'm the chief medical officer of a big hospital network in Canada. And prior to COVID, we had a million ambulatory visits a year. We made 80% of those virtual in three weeks. So the technologies are emerging quickly. And that's just the communication technology. This will now be augmented by AI. As you point out, the screen you're you're tapping in your GP's office is like the airport kiosk that's assessing you when you pass through iris scans and passport scanning. And all these systems are designed to integrate from an enormous database information about you. And and that's interesting. That has a plus and a minus for sure. And I've written a fair bit about this recently. The plus is the ability to draw on a big database. That's amazing. You may have a set of symptoms. Um, The one person, the one physician might miss that. They might be tired. Your appointment might be too short. The promise of AI is to integrate masses of information and recognize that maybe you have something that needs to be attended to. And the accuracy is quite high. The problem is both the quality of the database. So there's a f- lots of research emerging about the um, lack of diversity in the databases that are used. Some of the dermatology systems trained with Caucasian skin only, for example, or in Canada, the lack of um, data about indigenous peoples that, that, who present very differently with health concerns is missing. And the second problem is the one I think you're taking us, me toward, which is the lack of the human. So is, there, is this doing any harm? to the human interaction that underpins healthcare. And I think it could, but it doesn't have to. So the book we're working on, the subtitle of the book is Leading with Care in a Technological Age. Um, So first of all, there are definitely communication skills that, communication technologies that impoverish the human relationship. I compare these to diet cola. You know, you look at diet cola and it looks like food and it tastes like food, but if you tried to live on it, you would die quickly. Uh, it's not food. And I think there's a fair bit of virtual communication that looks like communication, maybe feels like communication, but as a psychiatrist, it's, it's impoverished in terms of the human interaction. And I watch for that very vigilantly with my patients in psychiatry. So if I'm treating somebody over the phone or over a video, I have to be extra vigilant to be sure That uh, I haven't extracted out or squeezed out all of those pieces that are therapeutic in treating depression or anxiety. So when you come to something like a screen, you're interacting with a a pad, tapping information on a screen. That's pretty poor in terms of the, the communication element. So, you know, the example I always use with people is the problem's not the technology. The problem is how we use the technology. So here's an example I like to teach with. Um, We all work with computers and when a patient, a family member comes into the office to see a doctor, or nurse, we're probably gonna use a computer. But you have a choice. You can turn your back on the patient and enter information into your desktop, uh, breaking the eye contact, totally interrupting the flow. Or you can get a tablet and you can sit beside your patient and the two of you can look down together at the tablet and you, I guess with social distancing now, you'd have to modify that, but <laughs> you could both look together at the information. And we do this in some of our clinics. So if you think about that, it's the same technology, it's a computer, but the way you're, doing, you're using it is different. The communication is, is very different between turning your back and sitting side by side. So I, I think that what's emerging here is that we're going to adopt technologies We're going to have a lot more AI, we're going to have robotics, we're going to have all kinds of cybernetic systems. But we have to think about what impact they'll have on humans and how we can adapt them so that they still support the caring and compassionate dimension of what we're trying to do.
0: Brian, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Before you go, one final question How has winning the prize helped your research?
1: Oh, this is enormous. It's it's un- I really uh, I I had to sit down when I had the call. I, I just couldn't really have imagined this myself, and I've heard this from other prize winners. It's it's um it's an extraordinary uh, lift to one's career to be recognized at an international level. Um, there's enormous respect for the Karolinska Institute, for this foundation, and for the prize. It it creates work, it leads to a lot of invitations for keynotes and, and talks and interviews, which I'm always happy to do because it, I'm so pleased and proud to spread news and help raise the field of medical education. And it's also helped me meet a group of scholars, including the ones I just mentioned, that I didn't interact with before. Coming to Sweden, uh, even to be an external opponent for PhD exams has been a great joy. And to have a chance to, um, ha- to be contacted out of the blue by people from around the world who want to talk about my work, related work, get mentorship, that's probably the, the, the most wonderful aspect of the prize.
0: Professor Brian Hodges, winner of the prize in 2016. And his book, Without Compassion, There Is No Healthcare, will be available from November the 18th, 2020. That's all from this episode. Next time we'll hear from another winner, Professor Lorelei Lingard, whose research has contributed significantly to our understanding of how healthcare professionals interact and communicate with each other. Until then, goodbye.